Hello and welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week we're joined by an individual who, unlike most of us, has actual experience of living in a war zone. Paul McAlinden joins us by Skype to talk about his book, Upbeat, the story of the Iraqi Youth Orchestra. And for you, it started when you read the article, Iraqi Teen Seeks Maestro. I was sitting in a pub in Edinburgh in 2008 eating fish and chips and reading a copy of the Glasgow Herald that just happened to be lying there on the table and flicking through I saw that headline, Iraqi Teen Seeks Maestro for Youth Orchestra and I was immediately struck that I knew absolutely nothing about Iraq. There was this call for help from Zuhal Sultan who was then a 17-year-old pianist in Baghdad who wanted to start a national youth orchestra of Iraq. And I, I realized I knew nothing about the people, I knew nothing about the culture, and I wanted to know more. All we'd ever had on television and radio and through the news was reporting on violence and war. Didn't that sort of put you off a little bit? No, not at all, not somebody like me, Zach. Uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, freelance conductors, we're a pretty tough bunch. We have to weather uh, very adverse circumstances and get parachuted into conductors, uh, into orchestras all over the world, different cultures, different languages, and work very quickly and effectively with a variety of different challenges. So we're pretty entrepreneurial. So Syria, Nigeria, you could, you could manage all these youth orchestras if uh, given, given a chance. I think I probably could now, but just because I can doesn't mean I have to. I mean, most of us would look at that article and go, oh, I could do that, and then finish their fish and chips, and that would be it. What, what do you think made you push on and kind of have almost a fixation with this idea? It was a fixation, uh, but in that split second that I read that article, one very important piece of the jigsaw became clear to me, and that was the role of the British Council, who, of course, are paid for by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office of Great Britain to do cultural diplomacy around the world, do English language lessons, and they had two very strong offices in Iraq, in Erbil and Baghdad. So thanks to them, they were able to provide the cement that would keep the uh, whole project on track, give it funding and internal logistics. So talk me very briefly through the process that you went through. You start off, you've read this article, what's the next step? Uh, the next step was to speak directly to that 17-year-old teenager, Zuhal Sultan. And we did this through Skype. I went back home to where I was living at the time, Cologne, and Zuhal was in Baghdad. And we spent one and a half hours chatting away online um, and discussed the possibilities of how to do this, discovered that we both knew the British Council quite well. And then the next step was really to go directly to, for, to the British Council in London, as she went to the British Council in Baghdad, and start cementing the logistics together. So from my experience of being in a school orchestra, orchestras are, are quite kind of fighty places. You've got, you know, the strings think they're better than the horn section and mm. things like that. How do you pull together such a, a diverse group? And then you've got the added difficulty of dif different ethnic groups, for example. Absolutely. Well, first of all, um, in a Western youth orchestra, I'd have to say that we're pretty spoilt rotten in this country and in the rest of Europe uh, and the rest of the developed world. In Iraq, you're talking about young people who had been picking up classical instruments as teenagers, as children, and learning through a war, a Middle Eastern war, how to play classical music 
by copying people on Skype, imitating videos, uh, downloading whatever information they could get from the internet. So these were already highly motivated young people who were desperate to use music to rescue their souls and to keep their sanity intact. So that collective motivation of the orchestra was always there. Um, but in terms of coming together, we had problems that the Kurds didn't speak Arabic and the Arabs didn't speak Kurdish. And there was a percentage of the orchestra, of course, that spoke English and they could communicate and get on fine with each other. But where there's a communication breakdown between languages, you need a team of translation of translators. Otherwise, people get paranoid. They start thinking, what's this person saying about me? Communication breaks down. And then you started building this orchestra basically online. It was very important to get it online because there was so much internal division and strife. And of course, Iraq was coming out of war. That was an academic point because many parts of Iraq back in 2008 and 2009 were still in war. So um, it, it was a difficult country to do anything on the ground level, putting the whole thing into cyberspace, doing everything on Skype by auditioning, for example, through YouTube, um, was the only way to be fair and to be safe and to be organized and to make sure that none of the people who might be envious at us or want to stop bringing Kurds and Arabs together um, could get in our way. Without wanting to be a damn squib, I mean, the, the idea of a, a you know, national youth orchestra is, is, is wonderful and it, you know, it's empowering uh, mm. young people and educating them and, and, and all, all of that. But uh, in, in, as far as Iraq is concerned, weren't, weren't there or aren't there rather bigger issues? It's literally uh, reminds me of uh, fiddling while Rome burns. I mean, you're, you're uh, doing that there. Uh, aren't there weren't there other more pressing things to do as far as human rights or uh, education or health or other things like that? Oh, I absolutely agree that there's a massive list of more pressing things to do. One has to look at it this way. Um, this was a 17-year-old girl in Baghdad who asked herself simply, what can I as an individual do to help heal my country? And her idea was a national youth orchestra. Um, there, all the problems that you talk about, which are now even bigger because of the so-called Islamic State, these are problems on, that can only be solved on a governmental level or on an NGO level by uh, UNESCO or the United Nations or um, transnationally from uh, foreign aid from Britain, from America, and so on and so forth. But let's get down to the absolute core of the issue. The reason that Iraq fell apart, and the reason that Iraq's never been able to get itself back together since, is because it has no collective culture. It is actually a patchwork, a Frankenstein country, cobbled together by the British in 1921 for their best oil interests, which never really worked well in the first place. So the very fact that we in this orchestra were trying to heal the cultural problem and bring unity amidst diversity was the very thing that I suspect Iraq as a country should have been concentrating on the fact that they were so easy to tear apart when the Islamic State invaded was because of culture. Nobody believed in Iraq. Nobody cared about what it meant to be Iraqi. There was nothing worth defending in the hearts of those soldiers in the Iraqi military. So I think culture is the foundation. It's the bedstone. And even though the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq could only address a tiny little slither of the problem, it was, in my opinion, the core problem. It's interesting that to me that you, I mean, you're a musician, you're an artist, frankly, and yet I've seen you writing about leadership in a very technical mm. way. Yeah. I mean, leading, you know, artists 
is the same as any group of people, I guess. What, what do you think businesses can learn from your experiences? Businesses, depending on the business, require different styles of leadership, and everybody knows this. So what they can learn from the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq in that particular experience is the bigger issue of working transnationally, working as, for example, a British company in a global economy where you may well be doing business and negotiating with somebody in the English language, but their definition of the word contract, their definition of the word negotiation is entirely different to yours. And so we can easily fall into this trap in Britain of being quite arrogant and believing that we're on the same level in terms of business footing and the concept of business just because we share a common language. The fact is music was a common language. It did unite us, but we still had to use a team of translators to communicate on a basic day-to-day -day level, on a technical level with each other and make sure that uh, over a period of years, our internal and operational processes were smoothed out. That's just one aspect of leadership across cultures that I had to confront very viscerally, but which everybody has to conduct, confront um, in intercultural and international project work, for example. You also talk about the importance of setting a pace when you're when you're setting up a project like an orchestra, and um, you know, and setting a pace obviously when you're playing music. Yeah. Do you think do you think that's applicable to kind of everyday business? It's applicable when people actually have a strategy that is taking them to a discernible objective. It, for us in the orchestra, it was really easy in that sense. We wanted to play a concert. The concert was the strategic objective, and it took upwards of two or three years of organizing to create one concert with that orchestra. So we had to think strategically all the time. But if you've got the plan, and if you share the plan with everybody, and if you get everybody on board, then you have an organization that can weather an awful lot of abuse and an awful lot of environmental strain to get to its objective. When it's taking two to three years to organize one concert for an orchestra, mm. how do you keep them motivated? One keeps them motivated. Well, I think the question is, how does one keep oneself motivated well, yeah. as a leader? Because if I'm not motivated, I have no authority or right to try and motivate anybody else. At the end of the day, leadership is not about leading people to a goal they want to achieve. It's about leading people to a goal they don't want to achieve. That's it. Everybody wants to run to the ice cream van. That's easy. But when you give people something which is difficult, which is soul-destroying, which has many challenges, then you yourself as a leader need to be exceptionally tenacious and have a great deal of resilience, a great deal of grit to be able to lead yourself through those challenges so that your troops can follow behind you. And did you find yourself having to make a lot of sacrifices? <coughs> I think sacrifice comes with leadership um, and it can lead to sacrifice syndrome. One can burn out, one can not have enough time for, for oneself, one can spend an awful lot of time caring about others. Uh, and that's a big danger. Um, but sacrifice is the cost of an objective. We all have to make sacrifices to make that happen. My personal sacrifices were to do with my own finances in the project. Huge amounts of time. If I were to add up the bill for the amount of project work I did, I think I'd be billing somebody about 600,000 quid over those five years. Um, that was voluntary time, but it was still worth something. Um, and uh, sacrifices in terms of um, just core values, making maintaining my core values whilst making sure that the young players in Iraq um, got 
education and got opportunities that assisted them on their level of music making. It was no point me trying to get them to, to sound like the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain or America. These are Rolls-Royce youth orchestras. We were operating to a much lower level, but with a great deal more complexity in the environment. How did you avoid that sacrifice syndrome that you just referred to? I think the truth is I didn't. Um, and that's another lesson that I think every leader has to confront. We have to actually really know our limits. And the only way to know our limits is unfortunately to test them. And that's a lifelong experience. Our limits change in different phases of life. I started this project when I was 40. I'm now the grand old age of 48. So I'm in a different part of my life and I know I would never do a project like this again. But back when I was 40, I believed I could. And so it's all about having the wisdom and the self-knowledge to know where your limits are and to know what's worth testing your limits on and to know what risks you can intelligently take for yourself on behalf of your team so that you don't suffer as a leader. What I also thought was interesting was that you, you walked away. How did you know when to do that? How did you know when, when you'd done enough, when your work was finished? Um, I think that's really easy. Incredibly difficult. I can handle. Any conductor can do that. But when it hits impossible... And the end state of the orchestra in 2014, when the so-called Islamic State invaded Iraq, that was as impossible as it gets. When it's impossible, you just have to walk away. There was no other option. And it was about saving oneself and making sure that one, I was back on a healthy road to recovery after losing something so dear to me, and also trying to offer as much support as possible to the players who were stuck in Iraq. That's heartbreaking, though. It was devastating, and I don't think the word devastating in the English language even comes close to how I really felt, and it's taken me a good two years to crawl back to a semblance of a life I want. Uh, writing my book Upbeat was part of that process, to reflect and review and to pass on my learning, um, and that was a very valuable thing to do to make something which was very, very uh, physical and dreadful to me uh, objective and to turn it into a story that my players could have and say we did this together we have to look at the positive things we achieved and we can be proud of ourselves I mean have you ever felt like you failed yes absolutely uh, you can't not feel that you've failed uh, and even though the circumstances that led to the orchestra's collapse in 2014 were entirely extraneous to all of the people on the team um we all felt a sense of loss and failure and devastation. It's irrational, but I think it's part of being human. Uh, how did you cope with that? How, you know, you, you said you came home and, and wrote your book, but mm -hmm. what, what else did you do to make, I don't know, shore yourself up? Shore myself up, friends, to be absolutely honest. I am blessed with a very tight group of very wonderful friends. I was living in Cologne in Germany at the time. I'm here in Glasgow now. All of the cities that I live in have very strong friends net networks. It's very easy as a leader to um, burn out and shut oneself off from social contact. But I think it's desperately important to maintain the people in your life who really will stand up for you. So to answer your question very pragmatically, I lived with my friends whilst I was writing the book. I was living with an artist friend who had a gorgeous studio. I spent three months sitting on her balcony, drinking tea or drinking wine, writing the book on my laptop. It's a luxury, but she gave me that as a gift. 
to help me through my own healing process. Paul, I mean, the, the reading the book, I mean, it actually sounds like a, almost like a work of fiction rather than a work of fact in the sense that it's, it inspires the, the mind and, uh, you know, you're, t- you're taken to these places and uh, these people. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but you're, you're, I mean, is that something that you think uh, people can, can learn from directly? Or, I mean, how do you, how, what's the read across between, you know, let's say Iraq and living in the UK and, you know, in our day-to-day life? That's a very good question. Um, obviously, the situation that I chose to put myself in was extreme by anybody's standards. Uh, but to the young people in Iraq, that was their normality. Um, they were going day-to-day through streets that could be blown up by terrorists, and they still do. Um, so what we have to try and understand, and I come back to the point of grit and resilience, is that we as human beings, regardless of where we live in this world, have a gigantic capacity for resilience and for creativity and for inventiveness and for grit and determination if we put ourselves in that position. Uh, we very often choose not to, and wisely, because the cost of doing so is so high. And the the possibility of risking failure and of the pain of failure. You know, we talk an awful lot about uh, taking risks and failing a lot in order to learn. Nobody talks about the pain and the cost of the hurt of failing. That's a hard thing to take. The other other point on that note, I think there's um, what is interesting about the story here is that... Mm -hmm. uh, the, the language and the, um, the, the ideas that you, you, know, you, 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 you outline and the things you've done, yeah. um, lots of CEOs and politicians pretend they are sacrificing, pretend they are caring and pretend they're doing this and they're doing that, but you know mm. that they're not. I mean, it's as if they're, they're actually stealing your, um, your rhetoric, uh, let's say, for their own purposes. You know, David Cameron, he's sacrificed his career for the for the European Union or for the for the country, and you know that they're not doing that; they're just thinking about themselves. Yeah. Um, in, in in your situation, I mean, you you've you've actually done something which is when it was life threatening, was dangerous, was um, quite unique. It comes back to the bigger theories of leadership that are going around today, such as servant leadership. If you are focused on your business's objective, if you are a leader who is willing to take your organization to the business goal rather than feathering your own nest, then uh, you actually stand a very strong chance of knocking the competition away and uh, cutting out a market segment that it really belongs to you and that you can hold with tenacity and real belief that you won that. Um, there's an awful lot of self-interest as we know, in today's world, uh, we have to preserve some of that self-interest. Otherwise, everybody will walk all over us. But at the same time, um, leadership, not just in theory, but in practice, and I experienced this with the orchestra, really does involve selfless directing towards a bigger goal. If that big goal is shareholder reward, that's been proven through research to be not a terribly motivating goal for anybody. But if that is the goal, then that's what you lead your organisation towards and selflessly. The way you've outlined your leadership uh, strategy is very technical. You know, you've read a lot of books. Yeah. But do you not think it's more of an intuitive thing? Do you, are you born a leader or, or can you teach yourself to be one? I think everybody is born with leadership traits whether they know that or not. Um, I don't think everyone is born with all leadership traits in equal measure, and that's when coaching 
and um, uh, seminars and training courses can be helpful. If you need to be more inspirational or charismatic, there's courses for that. But that doesn't mean you're a bad leader. The, some of the strongest people in leadership are introverts. They're just quietly grinding away, getting on with the work, reflecting deeply about the best decisions and not making rash decisions for the, business, for the best interests of their business. Uh, it, leadership comes in so many shapes and sizes. You can simply reflect on what we're good at, what we're bad at, and try to shore up the bad parts as much as we can and play to our strengths. Fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolutely inspirational story. Thank you very much for having me. With thanks to Paul McElinden, this has been City AM Unregulated. Remember, you can listen to the podcast on cityam.com or download via iTunes or Audioboom to listen on the go. <laughs>